It's good to be together tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, or you can open up your phone and uh, open up your favorite Bible app and turn to Ecclesiastes 1. We started our series last week. We're continuing it tonight. And if you're here for the first time tonight, uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. But I want to start by directing our mind to one of the most uh, forward, uh, maybe one of the most famous thinkers and writers of the 19th century. His name was Leo Tolstoy. Maybe you've read him. Uh, maybe you're forced to read him in your high school English class. Maybe a couple of you enjoy reading Tolstoy, um, and that would be because you're a high school English teacher. Um, maybe not for the rest of us. But he had an upbringing that we might not expect. He was born into a very wealthy Russian family, and he grew up in the Russian Orthodox Church. And at a young age, he decided that he didn't want anything to do with God. He abandoned his faith. He thought that even the thought, the idea of God was irrational. And he had a brilliant mind, yet he joined the military. And coming out of the military, he began his writing career, and he rose to fame and popularity very, very quickly. And some of his early writings included War and Peace, and, and he was famous for his writing. He was very popular. But after that initial wave of success began to decline, Tolstoy found himself looking for meaning. He found himself looking for purpose. He couldn't find it, and, and he kept diving and searching. And, and as his success began to spiral, he found his life in a further and further state of depression. So he decided that he needed to find meaning in life. So he dove into the physical sciences, and God gave him a brilliant mind, a sharp mind, and, and he tried to find meaning in studying science, and it didn't work. So then he went into philosophy, he went into psychology, and he was just trying to find meaning somewhere. But the more that he dug, the more depressed he became. Reflecting on the experience, here's what he wrote in a confession. Had I simply understood that life had no meaning, I could have borne it quietly knowing that that was my lot. But I couldn't satisfy myself with that. Had I been like a man living in a wood from which he knows there's no exit, I could have lived. But I was like one lost in a wood who, horrified at having lost his way, rushes about wishing to find the road. He knows that each step he takes confuses him more and more, yet still he cannot help rushing about. It was indeed terrible. And to rid myself of the terror, I wished to kill myself. No, Jake, that is not the right words. For Tolstoy, he thought that intellectual pursuit, he thought that knowledge, he thought that education was going to be his ticket out of the woods, but it wasn't. And he found himself at the pit of despair. He found himself dreaming of suicide. Sorry for the Debbie Downer start to our talk tonight, but Tolstoy came to the logical conclusion that anyone will come to when analyzing academics and intellect from a purely secular worldview. It's a philosophy called nihilism. It's a realm of philosophy that says life is meaningless. It's the natural consequence of a secular worldview. When you examine life from a psychological or scientific perspective, you can't find meaning. You can't find purpose because we're nothing more than a cosmic accident. We're nothing more than a product of our DNA. We're nothing more than a result of natural selection. So there can't be a God. There can't be absolute truth. There can't be religion. There can't be a happy existence. And that was where Tolstoy found himself. But I wish I could say this experience was unique to Leo, <laughs> but it's not. His experience is remarkably similar to that of King Solomon. You remember that what we talked about last week, 
And Solomon it likely is the author of Ecclesiastes, and if it wasn't him, it was someone who compiled his writings at a later date. And he did the same thing as Tolstoy. He tried to find meaning and satisfaction and purpose through his intellect and through education. And spoiler alert, it didn't work for him either. So tonight and the next three weeks of our series, we're going to look at one different topic, one different theme a week where Solomon dove into headfirst, trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose. And tonight, we're going to look at the theme of intellect and education and knowledge. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I, the preacher, had been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom by all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and no madness and no folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, you remember the text in 2 Kings chapter 3, Solomon just became king. And he's up in Gibeon, he's worshiping the Lord, and God appears to him in a dream and says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you ask. Just ask, ask for what you want. And Solomon could have asked for anything. But in his humility, he asks for wisdom. He wants to be a godly king. He needs wisdom to serve his people well. And God is so impressed, you could say, by Solomon's request, his humility that God doesn't just give him wisdom. He gives him wisdom, he gives him honor, he gives him wealth, he gives him peace. Solomon, some would say, is the wisest man to ever walk the earth. But the dichotomy is interesting. For being the wisest man, Solomon did a lot of really stupid things. And as he goes through his life, a lot of those things are chronicled in the book of Ecclesiastes. His heart was pulled towards other gods by the women that he married. But in his wisdom, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks back at his life and analyzes it from the perspective of wisdom. He gives us a glimpse of the meaning and satisfaction that he found through his pursuits. Look at verse 13. He says, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. He said the same thing in verse 16. I applied my heart. He said that in verse 17, rather. Sorry, ESV. It's just not a very good translation. Applied my heart. Now, it's literal. I mean, the Hebrew word uh, libby does mean heart, but the way that you and I use the word heart is much different than the way Hebrews, the, the Hebrews uh, language uses the word heart. You and I use the word heart as, a, as an emotion, as a feeling, as the place where we, we feel something, right? Well, for someone who spoke Hebrew, they used a different part of the body to describe uh, that sort of emotion. They used their bowels. So, you know, guys, here's just a, a word of advice. When Valentine's Day comes around in two weeks, don't, don't try to sound smart when writing that love letter to your winter conference camp crush. And don't say, I love you with all of my bowels. <laughs> it, it just isn't going to work. But it, that's actually how that word was used in Hebrew. 
Personally, I prefer English. Now I'll let you decide. Maybe you'll want to be a trendsetter and start replacing the word bowels for hearts. Please don't. But when the Hebrew language uses the word heart, it means how we use the word mind. And I think that makes this text make just a little bit more sense. He says, I applied my mind to seek after and search out wisdom. And that phrase is redundant, to seek and to search. It's this picture of an exhaustive and complete search. Solomon drops everything. He drops his duties as a king. He drops his duty as a husband. He drops his duty as a father. And he dives headlong into this academic, academic, this intellectual pursuit, trying to learn as much as he can about literally everything. That's the picture here. It's almost a picture of a student working toward her PhD dissertation. I don't know how much you know about uh, going for a, a PhD or working on your dissertation, but it is an all-encompassing task. You can't do anything else. She's going to pull up her sleeves, pull all-nighters in the library, reading texts that are a thousand years old in other languages, having your work critiqued by people that are smarter than you and telling you that your, your ideas are stupid. I mean, you're spending years of your life working on this one thing. That is the picture that Solomon is painting of his academic pursuit. But what was he looking for? What was he writing his dissertation on? Well, he says, all that is done under heaven. Solomon looked at the entirety of the human experience. He looked at life. He looked at work and sex and pleasure and money and adventure. And he didn't just look at these things experientially, though he tried all of them out, but he looks at them philosophically. He's researching them and he's trying to figure out uh, can I find meaning in all of these things? Can I find purpose in all of these things? He looks at them academically. He pursued exhaustive knowledge about everything. He was the true Renaissance man. He was that true professional student. But it doesn't take Solomon very long to give us a one-sentence synopsis of his entire dissertation, which is kind of him because then he spared us from having to read the other 300 pages. Look at the second half of verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Not a happy conclusion. After endless hours of academic study, after looking at life from a philosophical perspective, after hoping that knowledge and intellectualism might provide joy, it might provide meaning and satisfaction, might provide the joy, the spark that, that he was looking for, that he could turn the corner, he concludes that life is just an unhappy business. Once again, ESV, not a good translation. Hebrew does not mean unhappy. It actually means rotten. Solomon is saying the human existence, it's a rotten business. Yeah, Probably not a very great way for us to look at life. And he continues that he says life is vanity, hevel, that word we learned last week. It's meaningless. It's like a vapor. Life is like striving after the wind, a picture of trying to contain or, or control the wind. It's impossible. It's like herding cats. What Solomon is saying, finding meaning and pleasure through intellectualism, it's impossible because he believed a lie. He believed a lie. The more I know, the happier I will be. Hmm. Is there a chance that some of us here tonight have believed the same lie? The more that I know, the happier I'll be. That's what he says in verse 18. Look at that again. For in much wisdom, there's much vexation. He who increases knowledge 
increases sorrow. When Solomon launched into this academic pursuit, he thought he'd find happiness, but he found the opposite. His conclusion was the total opposite of what he expected to find. The more he studied, the more that he believed life was hevel. But why? Look again at verse 15. What's crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. (laughs) Okay, interesting analogy. It kind of seems obvious. Look at the second half. What's lacking cannot be counted. If I'm missing an unknown amount of money, can I count it? Of course not. But think about the, the first line, what's crooked cannot be made straight. Think of it this way. Have you ever grabbed a paperclip and tried to make it straight? If you haven't, you should try because it's impossible. As science people, I don't want you to think too hard about this, right? But if you take that paperclip and you try to make those edges as straight as possible, it just it doesn't work. Now, at one point, that little piece of metal was as straight as an arrow. Who knows how long it, long it was coming out of the factory. But once it's turned into a paperclip, trying to get that thing as straight as it was before, for me, it's impossible. That's what Solomon is saying. That life is crooked. But what makes our life crooked? Sin. Life under the sun is filled with sin, tainted by sin, marred by sin, infiltrated and infuriated by sin. There's nowhere that you and I can go to escape the painful reality of sin in a sinful world. And once sin entered the world, then there was no escape. There's no way around it. There's no way to rid our human existence from the painful reality of sin. Because if I had to guess, many of us don't understand or comprehend the global effect of sin within our world. Frankly, you and I live in a world, we live in a culture that believes increasingly in the inherent goodness of people. We live in a world that says that, that people are basically good. When we look at scripture, the Bible teaches us the complete opposite, that all people, you and I included, are basically sinful. I'm not saying that there is no good. I'm not saying that we can't do any good, but at the core, all humans are basically sinful. It's what Paul writes in Romans 3. That quoting from the prophets, he says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I don't think Paul leaves too much room for doubt there, does he? It's what, in theology terms, we call the doctrine of total depravity, that all of us are born in sin, and on our own, we can't pursue God, that at our core, we're sinful. Isaiah takes it a step farther. It says that even the good things we do, the righteousness that we have is like filthy rags. We're born in sin. No one had to teach our son Matthias to take food from his table and toss it on the floor. No one had to teach him to whine and throw a temper tantrum when he doesn't get his way. When he walks up to one of my wife's beautiful plants and one of us say, don't take a leaf, do not pull a leaf off the plant. No one had to teach him to get that little glimmer in his eye and then rip the leaf off anyway. Because he inherited sin from me. And I inherited sin from my dad who inherited sin from his dad. And we could go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because God is not the originator of sin. God did not create sin. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone. He's perfect. He's unable to sin. But in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve one rule. Don't eat of the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, came, tempted Adam and Eve, and he got them to believe the lie. If you have, if you have a bite, you're going to be like God. In other words, are you sure that God loves you? Are you sure that God knows best for you? And they fell into temptation. They gave into sin. Sin entered the world, creating this giant chasm in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've inherited guilt. We've inherited sin from Adam and Eve. I know what some of you are thinking. What the heck? How's that fair? Why am I guilty? How can I inherit sin from somebody who sinned thousands of years ago? I've got two reasons. One, if you or I were there in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing. Why? (laughs) Well, look at your resume. Look at my resume. We have sinned over and over and over and over again, demonstrating that we would have done the same thing. We're condemned. I'm condemned not because of Adam's guilt, but because of my guilt, my sin before a holy God. But second, if you don't think it's fair that we inherit guilt from Adam and Eve, then you certainly can't think that it's fair that we receive Jesus' righteousness on the cross. But sin influences more than just ourselves, more than just our our human hearts. The effects of sin are obvious within creation. In Romans 8, Paul writes that creation is subject to futility, that creation is in bondage to corruption, that the creation is groaning together in, in, in pains of childbirth, waiting for redemption. So why are there hurricanes in our world? Sin. Why are there volcano eruptions that erupt from the bottom of the ocean and cover an entire nation in feet of volcanic ash? Sin. Why are there polar vortexes? Sin. We live in a world that's tainted by sin. And the painful influence of sin has affected everyone and everything. There's no realm of philosophy. There's no area of study. There's no human heart. There's no geographical location that is untouched from the condemning effects of sin. Okay, don't miss this. Therefore, the more that we understand about our world, the more we're faced with the painful reality of sin and brokenness. Wisdom and knowledge cannot change reality. The more that we know, the more we're acutely aware of death and destruction and evil in the world. For Solomon, the more that he sought to understand, the more he exponentially increased the ways in which he encountered sin and encountered total depravity, the more he understood about the problem of evil and the sinful nature in each human heart. I think the preacher's words apply to you and I in a way that we might not expect. Because we live in a world that desires to be in the know. (laughs) We live in a world, frankly, that's addicted to the news. Pandemics and politics, climate change, China, underwater volcano eruptions, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. And when we watch the news, Yes, we're informed about what's going on in the world, but if we're being honest, not all of it, but 90% of it is depressing. The more that we know, the more news that we intake, the more we're confronted with the painful reality of sin in the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just dig our head in the sand and 
ignore current events and pretend like there's nothing going on around us. However, I'm convinced that many in our world, maybe even some here tonight, believe that the more they know, the more they watch the news, the more they read the news, the happier they'll be. It's not the case. The preacher reminds us it's the opposite. The more that you watch Fox News or CNN or wherever you get your news, the more you're going to be depressed. That's our first principle tonight. Turn off the news. Turn off the news. <laughs> We're getting ready to go on our Mexico mission trip in three and a half weeks. I'm pumped. Can't wait to be back. And I've been emailing back and forth with our, one of our contacts in Mexico. So I shot her an email about a month ago as um, the Omicron variant was, uh, was going pretty strong in our area and emailed her and said, do you think that Omicron is going to throw any wrenches in, in our camp this year? <laughs> and she took a couple days to reply and to check my email and, and had a reply and it said, I'm so sorry for the delay. I don't watch the news, so I actually didn't know what Omicron was. So I had to ask a friend and, and then she went on and gave me her answer. I wanted to reply, be like, you are my hero. Like, I wish I didn't know what Omicron was. Like, how do you do that? Her life, frankly, was a lot more joyful. It was a lot simpler because she said, I'm not doing this. I'm not even going to turn on the news. Now, that might not be a realistic expectation for all of us. But I wonder, when we look at our scripture intake and we look at our time watching and reading the news, where do those compare? I hope as a young adult family that we're spending more time reading and intaking and meditating on and, and listening to God's word than we are listening to the depressing effects of sin in our culture. Or what do we talk about? What consumes our conversation? Are we always talking about depressing current events with our coworkers, our family members? Or are we talking about the Lord? This is one of the things I think the American church has gotten wrong in the last two years. I think as a whole, we've been distracted by current events. We've been consumed by the news. And we've missed an opportunity to talk about Jesus instead of just reflecting on and on about what's going on in the world. And frankly, if King Solomon were here and he was watching the news with us, what would he say? Eh, it's all hevel. That's what he'd say. But more than just watching the news, I think there's some of us here tonight that, that believe that the more that we know, the happier we'll be. The more education that we have, the happier you'll be. You're, you're thinking that if I, if I get that high school diploma or I get that GED, GED then I'm going to be happy. Or if I get that associate's degree from NTC, then I'm finally going to be happy. When I graduate from the nursing program, then, then I'm finally going to be happy. When I get that bachelor's degree, then I'll be happy. When I get that advanced degree, when I get that doctorate degree, then, then I'll be happy. Solomon reminds us that when your identity is in your education and your intellect, you will live a meaningless life. But remember the big idea for Ecclesiastes, that life is meaningless under the sun, but we find meaning through the sun. We find meaning in a relationship 
with Christ. When Jesus is our identity, when our lives are built on his foundation, when we live within the framework of a Christian worldview, then everything changes. We're not just living for this life, we're living for eternity. We understand that, yes, my life and your life now is tainted by sin, but that's not going to be the case forever. The Christian worldview has the answer for the problem of evil with a hope that goes far beyond it. When our identity is in Christ, then education isn't meaningless. Where identity is in Christ, knowledge and intellect, it's not meaningless. We can find great meaning through education when Jesus is our center. But it starts with Proverbs 9.10, possibly also written by Solomon. And if this isn't a verse you have memorized, this would be a great verse to memorize. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And that's our second principle tonight. The foundation of education is Proverbs 9, 10. Make sure you at least have that reference written down on your paper so that you can go back to that this week. It'd be a great passage to memorize. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding or knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Isn't that the opposite of our culture? Our culture tells you, tells me that you are truth. You make up your own truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And we can just agree to disagree. Our world has created uh, this idea that, that you and I can be the center of our own universe. But that's not how it works. The verse is clear that wisdom begins when we fear God, when he is our center. Now, you and I use the word fear in a negative sense in our world today, but that's not how the Bible always uses the word fear. The Bible uses it in a healthy way. Fear is one of awe and of reverence and respect. When we understand God's greatness, when we understand how big he is, when we understand his power and his majesty, then we should tremble in our boots. We should say what Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. When we consider God's greatness compared to ourselves. When we have a healthy fear of God, we think more of God and less of ourselves because knowledge puffs up. Education and intellect can easily lead to pride, but when we understand who God is and his knowledge and his power, even a lifelong pursuit of one academic subject is like a kiddie pool of knowledge compared to God's ocean of intellectual understanding. The fear of the Lord leads to intellectual humility. We'll never come close to scratching the surface of what God knows and understands. Because when Jesus is our center, when we have a relationship with him, when we seek uh, to find meaning in education, when we, we seek to still pursue education, we've got to start with Proverbs 9, 10. Wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. We can only understand rightly when we build on God's foundation, when we live within the framework of a Christian worldview. Any academic pursuit that's devoid of God is what the preacher would call hevel vanity. It's meaningless. It won't provide the joy or the satisfaction that you desire. Well, let me pause for a moment and unpack what I just said and what I didn't say. Any academic pursuit that eliminates God and a Christian worldview is meaningless. There are some in our world that believe that homeschooling is the only way. There are others in our world that believe going to Christian school is the only way. There's some in our world that believe that going to public school is the only way to go. Personally, I don't agree with any of those categories. I believe that God has given godly parents the opportunity to choose what they prayerfully believe is best for their children, and each option has benefits and challenges. But at the same time, 
it's not a secret that public education in our country has become increasingly secular. And I'm not just talking about the elimination of prayer or no Bible reading in schools. Think of some science classes where some teachers will preach the religion of Darwinian evolution, often without explaining any other theories. Macroevolution has created this framework that's completely devoid of God, that's eliminated him as a creator, that we're just the product of natural selection. Or other classes that champion and celebrate a sexual ethic that stands in total contrast to God's word, allowing students to pick their gender while using the gender unicorn to help explain how they identify. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but we have to understand that the Christian worldview is less and less welcomed in the public sector in our country today. And personally, that makes me even more thankful for our teachers that are here with us tonight that are working to make a kingdom impact on their students within public schools, the students that they serve tirelessly day in and day out. If that's you, thank you. But as our society moves farther and farther from orthodoxy, does that mean that you and I just abandon public education? I don't think so. Because the problem isn't education. Life is meaningless when the pursuit of knowledge becomes the ultimate thing. Education is meaningless when it's disconnected from the framework of a Christian worldview. If you're a Christ follower here tonight, it's so important for us to understand that the primary job for discipling and for training and for teaching the next generation does not fall in the government. The primary job for teaching and discipling the next generation, it doesn't fall on the shoulders of our schools. It doesn't fall on the shoulders of Highland Community Church. Teaching the next generation falls primarily on the shoulders of mom and dad. Now, why am I telling you this tonight? Well, chances are, if you're not a parent already, the majority of you in this room will be parents tonight. Not tonight. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. What color red would you describe my face right now? Tonight, many of you in this room will be parents someday, not today, someday. And it's important for you and I to make some important decisions today that we're going to raise our kids in a home that has Jesus at the center. It's more than just sending your kids to the right school. It's more than just going to the right church. It's modeling day in and day out what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ, teaching and training your children in the way that they should go. So someday, if, if you send your kids to public school, great. It's your job to make sure that their education is framed within a Christian worldview, that you're working with them to make sure that they're, they're interpreting and, and looking at what they're learning through the lens of Scripture. Now, if you send your kids to pub, uh, Christian school, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to make sure that what your kids are hearing is filtered through the framework of God's Word. Now, some of you here tonight are studying at a secular institution. You're in college. You're at a public university. You've got to do the same thing. You've got to take what you're learning in the classroom and filter it through God's word, filter it through a Christian worldview. Some of you here are studying at a Christian school. You've got to do the same thing. You should never assume that just because you're studying at a Christian school 
that everything that you're hearing from the front of the classroom is 100% truth. You've got to take what you're hearing and point back, go back to God's word. Because the fear of the Lord is not just a, a head thing. It's a heart thing. And one of the most dangerous things that you and I can do is study scripture, even in an academic setting, with just our mind and not with our heart. I think of a man like Bart Ehrman. Maybe you've read his stuff. He knows the New Testament and the Greek language infinitely better than I ever will. Yet he is as far from Jesus as just about anyone. And he's antagonistic towards followers of Christ because he's made the Bible here and not here. The fear of the Lord starts here. It starts with faith. It starts with following Jesus like a child. That's where I want to land tonight is in Mark chapter 10. You can turn there with me. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the second gospel. It'll be in Mark 10, starting in verse 13. I'll give you a second to turn there. Here's what Mark writes. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Okay, there's a lot going on in this account, but I want to make two quick but giant observations. First, Jesus affirms the value of children. While the disciples were reflecting their culture and they think, Jesus has no time for kids. Did you see how Jesus replied? He wasn't just annoyed. He wasn't just frustrated. Jesus was indignant. I can guarantee that the disciples never made that mistake ever again. And this is one of the reasons that I really appreciate the series called The Chosen, maybe you've watched it, that it gives this picture of Jesus' love and value of children. Shameless plug for The Chosen, if you haven't watched it yet. But second, Jesus takes this teachable moment and provides a spiritual truth. He says, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. In other words, to the enter the kingdom of heaven, we must receive it like a kid. Man, there's days I miss being a kid. Life was simple, wasn't it? So much less drama. Life wasn't as complicated. The worries of life were a lot less when I was five, and probably for you too. But at the same time, young kids are also trusting, aren't they? Matthias' thing lately, um, he's our 18-month-old son, has been trust falls, where <laughs> it's really fun. He'll stand on the ottoman in the living room, and Hannah or I will be sitting on the couch. He'll stiffen up like a board and he'll just <laughs> fall. <laughs> and he's trusting that Hannah and I will catch him. And if we don't, like, who knows what he's going to crash into. But that's a picture of trust, isn't it? It's a picture of a childlike faith. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus with trust, with faith, like a child. Because the gospel is simple. Jesus died, he rose, and he's coming again. 
and you and I have the privilege to believe in Jesus with childlike faith. It's amazing. It doesn't take this years-long academic pursuit to understand the gospel. We don't need to go on this enlightenment or self-discovery journey to find Jesus. We don't need a higher ed degree in theology. The gospel is simple. It's so simple that a child can understand it, yet so profound that you or I could spend our entire life marveling at it. We've got to embrace the simple gospel. And that's our final principle tonight. Embrace the simple gospel. Gospel is a Greek word that means good news. It starts with bad news that you and I are sinful, (laughs) that we're separated from God. There's nothing that I can do to save myself that I've earned by my own behavior, eternity separated from God in an eternal lake of fire. That is the worst possible news. But the good news is that Jesus lived and died in your place. He rose from the dead in your place. He paid for your sin and my sin on the cross, giving us the free gift of salvation, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the best news that we can be saved from ourselves, that we can have a right relationship with God. And if you're here tonight and you've never believed in Jesus, that is the most important decision that you can ever make. That is the only way that you're going to find meaning and satisfaction and purpose in your life is through Christ. Not an easy life, but a meaningful life here and in eternity. And is there a chance that some of you have just made the gospel too complicated? Man, it's too good to be true. I have to believe in Jesus? I'm saved? Man, there's got to be something I've got to do. Yeah, I'll believe, but then I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I I've got to make sure that I take communion. I've got to go to church. I've got to start giving. I've got to go on a mission trip. Then then I can be a Christian. No, that's not how it works. The gospel is so simple. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Or is there a chance that you've made knowing Jesus a, a head thing, not a heart thing? That you know about Jesus, but you've never given him your life. You've never said, yeah, Jesus, I, I believe it. I, I'm following you. I'm giving my life to you. takes faith, not from our head, from our heart. It's the good news of the gospel. Now, Leo Tolstoy, his story didn't end in suicide, thankfully. He lived a long life after he wrote a confession. But it's interesting, from the bottom of the pit, he found God that he believed that God wasn't irrational, but rational. And he started to build his life on this framework of a Christian worldview. And I don't want to paint Tolstoy to be a hero. I'm actually not sure that he was a genuine Christian. Um, and here's why I say that. He didn't believe in the supernatural, so he actually rewrote the four Gospels and removed every miracle, and his Gospels ended with Jesus on the cross. So there was no resurrection. That's a problem. Um, So I'm not quite sure that he was a genuine follower of Christ. He didn't even think that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, I hope that he changed his mind before he passed away. I just am not sure if that was the case or not. But Tolstoy is a picture of God's common grace, that when we build our life on the foundation of God and his worldview, that we can find meaning and we can find purpose. But we've got to believe in Jesus to have meaning in this life and the next But do you know what did it for Tolstoy? From the bottom of the pit, 
Do you know what book he read among others that helped him turn the corner? It was Ecclesiastes. Life is meaningless under the sun, but we find meaning through the sun. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength to center any academic pursuit in our life around Christ. That Proverbs 9.10 is a, a key verse for us. That we center in on you and on your wisdom. That we understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And may we frame anything that we hear, anything we understand, anything we learn through the lens of your word. So may we be diligent to do that work of going back to your, your word every time and to compare what we hear with what we see in Scripture. Well, Father, it's been a good night so far. And um, even as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, we ask that you might guide our time. Uh, may this just be a chance for us to connect in community with one another and, and take that next step in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.